is making a comeback in Taiwan. After 250 days of no local transmissions, there's about a dozen new domestic cases. And most of them are connected to a hospital cluster infection. We'll tell you all about that in today's show. I'm Natalie So. And I'm Andrew Ryan. Let's check out the stories on our radar. Taiwan's envoy to the U.S., Xiaobi Kim, has attended the inauguration of U.S. President Joe Biden. She is the first Taiwanese representative to receive a formal invitation to a U.S. inauguration since the two countries cut ties in 1979. Here's what she had to say. I'm honored to be here today on behalf of the people and government of Taiwan at the inauguration of United States President Biden and Vice President Harris. Democracy is our common language and freedom is our common objective. I look forward to working with the next administration in advancing our mutual values and interests. A cluster of domestic COVID-19 cases at a Taiwanese hospital has led to the cancellation of several large-scale events. That's on the orders of Health Minister Chen Shih-chung. The Lantern Festival, Lunar New Year Dihua Street Market, and a Taoist festival in Taidong have been cancelled for the first time in three decades. And the Taipei International Book Festival has been moved online. And under the radar this week, there's a goose on the loose, and a rare one at that. The bar-headed goose is found in places like the Himalayas, and until this week, it had never been sighted in Taiwan before. Now several of the geese have appeared in Ilan County, attracting excited birdwatchers. This Saturday marks the one-year anniversary of the lockdown in Wuhan, China. Andrew, do you remember what you were doing at that time? Yeah, I remember it was uh, Lunar New Year, right? Right. So I was actually on holidays in southern Taiwan, and when we heard about it, it was like, wow, that's really extreme. Actually, I was doing the news at that time, and I was writing the news story. I'm like, wow, they're taking this really seriously. Yeah, and I actually remember when I came back to Taipei, people were required to wear face masks already on the train, and you couldn't buy face masks anywhere in Taiwan. And the school vacation was extended. So That's right. So we did a lot in the beginning. I'm glad that we did. Yeah. So what has this past year looked like for the pandemic here in Taiwan? Well, the total number of cases has been less than 900, and the deaths have been to the single digits. Have a look at this chart. The worst week was in mid-March last year. That's the week when Taiwan closed its borders. There were 123 imported cases and 10 local cases that week. Then we had a long period of no local transmissions between mid-April and late December, when an airplane pilot infected his female companion. And that brings us all the way up until this month. So here's what you need to know about the cluster infection at the hospital in northern Taiwan. This is Taoyuan General Hospital, located about an hour outside of Taipei, near Taiwan's largest international airport. Many workers, as you can see, are in full PPE. It looks pretty empty because they've closed down some of the wards and are no longer admitting new patients or allowing visitors. So how did the cluster infection begin? It all began with patient 812, a Taiwanese man in his 60s who returned to Taiwan from the U.S. in late December. He was diagnosed with COVID-19 on January 3rd. On January 12th, a doctor at the same hospital was confirmed to have COVID-19. It's thought that he got it while intubating that patient. On the same day, a nurse who lives with the doctor was also confirmed. Now, the doctor is also thought to have infected another nurse and doctor at the hospital, who then infected a Vietnamese caregiver and two more medical workers. So far, three family members of medical workers have been infected. 
So what's going to happen following this outbreak? Well, on Thursday, Health Minister Chen Shizhong said that there would not be a lockdown. However, he is calling for the cancellation of all large-scale public events. And many of them have to do with the Chinese Lunar New Year, such as the popular Dihua Market and also the Lantern Festival, which is canceled for the first time. Let's take a look. A dazzling array of lights on slender stalks of bamboo. The main display at Taiwan's 2021 Lantern Festival is quite a sight, but would-be visitors will have to wait. Authorities have cancelled February's event after Taiwan saw four new domestic cases on Tuesday. Transport Minister Lin Jialong is reassuring artists their hard work won't be for nothing. He says there will be future opportunities to display their craft work, but the event in Xinzhou cannot take place as planned. Meanwhile, restaurants and hotels hoping to profit from the flood of visitors have been left to count the cost. Hotel PR manager Rose says they're already feeling the effect. She says as soon as the event was cancelled, customers began calling to cancel reservations. But on the bright side, without traffic controls in place, hotels near the festival grounds are seeing a bump in reservations for the Lunar New Year. All eyes have been on the U.S. inauguration this week, and we're really happy to see that Taiwan's representative to the U.S., Xiaobi Kim, got an official invitation. Yeah, that's right. This is the first time that that's happened. In the past, envoys from Taiwan have gone on the invite of, I think, U.S. Congress people. That's right? right. That's right. Yeah. And also, we're happy to see that Secretary of State Antony Blinken at a Senate hearing this week had a lot of positive things to say about U.S.-Taiwan ties. We're going to show you a clip now of him answering questions from Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. Uh, when it comes to Taiwan, uh, it's been the policy of the United States to basically, for lack of a better term to guarantee Taiwanese democracy. What's your view of that? Uh, my view is we have a, uh, an abiding and longstanding and bipartisan commitment to Taiwan and to the Taiwan Relations Act. Uh, we need to make sure that they have the means uh, to deter aggression, uh, to defend themselves. Uh, I'd like to see them, uh, Taiwan even more engaged uh, in the world. It's a, uh, in many ways a, a model democracy a strong economy, and uh, a technological powerhouse. And, of course, the way they've dealt with COVID-19 has a lot of lessons to, uh, to teach us. But if the Chinese Communist Party decided to use military force against the, the population in Taiwan, that would create great upheaval throughout the world, and they would pay a heavy price. Is that fair to say? That would be a grievous mistake on their part. Yeah. Now, in our show, we've actually talked a lot about how people in Taiwan, some people are very nervous about a Biden administration because they perceive Trump as being very anti-China and therefore pro-Taiwan. But after seeing uh, Secretary of State Blinken responding to those comments, I think that maybe that'll put people's worries to rest. Also, last week when I spoke with former AIT director William Stanton, he gave some reasons why he thinks U.S.-Taiwan ties will continue in a positive direction. If you look carefully at what Biden said in the past and what he said more recently, you know, he's gotten a lot of criticism because he downplayed the threat from China when he said, oh, those guys, they're not nothing for us to worry about early on when he was running as a candidate. But subsequently, he's referred to Xi, uh, Xi Jinping as a thug. Um, he's called attention to the human rights situation in Hong Kong. So... Um, I think I think we're going to move and continue to move in a positive direction with Taiwan. And you know, under Xi Jinping, China continues to make moves that appeal to no one in America. 
you have to remember that 73% of the American people now, according to the Summer Pew survey this past summer, have an unfavorable view of the PRC. That's the highest it's ever been in history. And even a higher percentage of American people, 77%, have an unfavorable view. Um, they don't trust Xi Jinping to do the right thing in foreign, foreign affairs. So then you also have a Congress, which more than any time in my 34 years as a U.S. diplomat and since then, we have a Congress which is totally unified in support of Taiwan. Um, even during the Trump period, there were six important pieces of legislation, mostly rhetorically encouraging the government to do things, but they were all very supportive of Taiwan. So I think, um, I think there's a willingness and I think there's strong support for a continuing improvement in U.S.-Taiwan relations. Now, if you'd like to see the entire interview with William Stanton, you can check that out on Facebook and YouTube. Up next, Hashtag Taiwan. This is Hamzi. She's a South Korean mukbanger. That just means she's a YouTuber who eats on camera for a living. I know, I know, some people have all the luck. But you might not envy Hamzi so much after today's story, because she's at the heart of a spat between Korean and Chinese netizens. What are the two groups fighting about? Vegetables. Well, more specifically, fermented vegetables. On January 15th, Hamzi uploaded a video of herself eating what she called white kimchi. Kimchi, of course, is Korea's national dish, which is spicy pickled vegetables. Chinese netizens didn't like the designation white kimchi because to them it looked like Hamzi was eating Chinese fermented cabbage. They thought that by labeling the food white kimchi, Hamzi was asserting that fermented cabbage is South Korean. At this point, Hamzi laid low until the outrage died out, is what I would say if that's what happened. Instead, online users from China and South Korea got into it in the comments section. Some keen-eyed users pointed out that Hamzi placed hearts on anti-Chinese comments. By placing hearts on the message, Hamzi not only confirms that she saw the message, but she also approves of it as well. Hamzi issued an apology on the Chinese social media site Weibo, even bowing as a show of sincerity. Oh, Hamzi, don't you know that when you side with one group, you alienate the other? South Korean users on YouTube went, WHAT?! Hamzi then went back to YouTube to do damage control, saying that her Chinese management agency is the one that told her to apologize. In the end, the company that represents Hamzi in China dropped her. Talk about a classic case of trying to have your kimchi and eat it too. In Taiwan, people commented on how overly sensitive Chinese netizens were. Huang Zixuan says, I have never seen Chinese netizens accept any apology from a celebrity. Celebrities might as well take a hard stance from the start. That'd make for a better show. I'm Talking Turkey said, The worst part is she couldn't win over either side. One said she betrayed Korea, the other said her apology was insincere. It's definitely a lose-lose situation for Hamzi for sure. This whole ordeal had Ziyin Lai questioning his understanding of the world when he asked, So wait, kimchi isn't Korean? To which Crystal Lin reminded him, anything called kimchi is Korean. Here's a cheeky meme posted in response to the story. It says, Optimists will say the glass is half full. Pessimists will say it's half empty. Chinese netizens will say it's an insult to China. I think you can't deny that anything called kimchi is Korean, but if you call it pao cai, which is what we call it here in Taiwan, then I agree with Fin Lu who says pao cai is from Taiwan. It goes great with a plate of fried stinky tofu fresh out the fryer, and don't you forget it. 
Today's brain game is an inauguration quiz. It's going to be a contest between Leslie and Andrew. Oh no! About the Taiwan and U.S. inaugurations that were streamlined because of COVID. Now, first of all, I want you guys to pick a card, any card, Which only one do you two want? cards. Oh, <laughs> one of the closest. Okay, oh, and lift it and show the audience. Oh. What do you got? Yeah, Taiwan. And you USA. got U.S. So you're answering all the Taiwan questions and you're answering all oh. the U.S. questions. <laughs> okay. And see who gets the most right. Okay. okay. And you have 90 seconds. Okay. All right. Ready? Go. Biden was sworn in with his hand on what special item? A Bible. Yeah. What kind of Bible? A, a, a new... new oh, a 19th century family heirloom Bible. Oh, come on. <laughs> it counts. <laughs> it counts. Tai was sworn in facing what two things? Uh... Oh, no. Uh, a portrait of Sun Yat-sen. Uh-huh. And the Constitution? The flag. The flag. So, I'll give you half of that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How many people were at the Capitol stage to witness Biden and Harris's inauguration? Oh, jeez. 500? Nope. Ooh. Uh, 600? No. 200. <sighs> and... How many guests were at the Taipei Guest House to hear Tsai's inaugural speech? 200. That's right. Okay. Oh, come on. That's the same answer. <laughs> Thank you, sir. In the United States, the National Mall was closed. What was put there to represent the people? Uh, flags. That's right. 200,000 American flags. Wow. Flags. Taiwan had a lot of commemorative inauguration uh, souvenirs. What was in the gift box given to guests at President Tsai's commemoration? Special mask. Face nope. mask. Nope, similar. Uh, Keep going. Pillow? No. Alcohol? Pandemic, yeah, pandemic stuff like commemorative soap, hand sanitizer. <laughs> okay. In lieu of the congressional luncheon and the inaugural parade and balls, what was the main source of entertainment in the U.S.? Uh, there were singers that sang and fireworks. And, and something else. Tom Hanks. Right, Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks. Uh, hosted a, a live web show. A TV special called Celebrating America. Okay, and in lieu of the inaugural banquet and parade, what was the main source of entertainment in Taiwan? It was a, a stream concert? That's right. Oh. Online oh, concert wow. called Keep Zero Be Hero. Keep Zero Be Hero. That is my nickname, by the way. <laughs> You're okay, we're running hero. out of time, but I'll ask you okay. two more questions. All right. So, in his speech, Biden said America needs something to overcome its challenges. What was that one word? Needs something to one, overcome. One, one, one word. I know it's not vaccines, but that would all work. <laughs> Um, needs unity. That's right. Really? Good for you. You should be giving a speech. <laughs> okay. In her inaugural speech, what did Tsai call each person in Taiwan? A hero? That's right. Oh, wow. Good wow. job. So, let's see. Who won here? Uh, I think it was won. a tie. Yeah, I, I think, think it was a tie. <laughs> Very good, you guys. So, that was the inauguration quiz, uh, inauguration contest. Uh, great job. And thanks for joining our break game. And our final question of the day, who would you invite to perform at your inauguration? Uh, Natalie, let's say you're inaugurated. All right. Well, I would invite Cloud Kate. I think their dances are beautiful. They transcend all cultures. Wherever I'm being inaugurated, I'm sure people would love it. That's an amazing uh, choice. That's a great one. Out of the box. Yeah. Leslie. Um, Let me preface this really quickly. Never in the history of us asking this question have I had so much trouble finding an answer. (laughs) In my mind, there was a whole vetting process, and then I held auditions. Yeah, and then I was like your going through who was going. Yeah. yeah, but I ended with uh, the Chinese Ooh, rocker, cool. Uba, a Taiwanese rocker, Ubai, because he is huge everywhere. He's super Taiwanese, and um, I don't think he's ever had an inaugural 
uh, concert or anything. It That's came an down, amazing choice. Yeah, it came yeah, down to him great. and Ame, and then I was like, Ame already did it for President Sensuapian, so I'm like, let's give Uba his chance. Well, I, now I feel bad. You guys both chose uh, Taiwanese acts. I did not. Um, I would normally say indigenous singers, right? But I was trying to think of something, oh, yes, less than usual. Oh, oh, on oh, yeah, she can build it out. <laughs> Give man. me the respect, man. R E S P E C T. That's a great one. Sounds good. All right, so if any of us uh, get inaugurated, you may see those performers, well, or a hologram of those performers on stage. So thank you so much for joining us for Taiwan Insider this week. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Yes, leave a comment below and subscribe if you like our show. For Taiwan Insider, I am Natalie So. I'm Leslie Liao. And I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week. Served. Join Andrew Ryan and Ellen Chu as they sample their way through Taiwan's culinary delights. Andrew, I thought we said no more intestines. <clears throat> That's on Feast Meets West every Saturday, only on Radio Taiwan International, radio for refined palates. Are you listening? <laughs> this is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. What do you know about Taiwan? I know who the president is. What about their local music and food? Well, hmm, what do you suggest? Tune in to Radio Taiwan International. Here at RTI, we offer the authentic Taiwan experience. You hear the sound of remote attractions, the local food, music, the lives of real Taiwanese as they live it. Visit english.rti.org.tw. Listen to the real Taiwan. RTI is conducting a survey. Visit our website to fill out the questionnaire or simply send us your answers to the following four questions. Question number one. What platform do you use to listen to RTI programs? You can write more than one, but list the most frequent one first. Question number two. Which RTI programs are your favorites? Write no more than three programs. Question number three. Out of a total of five stars, how many stars would you give RTI's English broadcasts overall? And question number four. What are your suggestions for RTI's English programs? Everybody who enters will have a chance to win a prize. Send your answers to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan, 11199. Or send it via email. Our email address is audience one at rti.org.tw That's audience and the numbers 0 and 1 at rti.org.tw Be sure to leave your name, gender, age, and nationality. Taiwan Today with Natalie So.
Welcome to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. The biggest news in U.S.-Taiwan relations came about two weeks ago when U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced that the U.S. would lift all current restrictions on U.S.-Taiwan ties. Now, to talk with me about what that means is a former de facto U.S. ambassador to Taiwan, the former director of the American Institute in Taiwan, William Stanton. There have been a lot of restrictions over the years about what U.S. officials can do in their relations with Taiwan. I asked him if the move means that all of these restrictions are no longer valid. When it comes down to some of the rules, for example, the injunction that you can't go to Twin Oaks in Washington, D.C. if you're a senior official. You can't, in any case, go to the National Day celebration for Taiwan at Twin Oaks. Will those change? I don't know. Because those are the things that are more noticeable to the PRC government, and therefore they might object. So it's hard to predict. Will they, in fact, now just forget about all these changes? One of the changes I made myself, but I did it with sort of a wink and a nod from Washington, was I, I was, for the first time, they were always concerned about symbols, and I raised the American flag over AIT. And I did that because I thought, if we're the American Institute of Insurance, as Americans, <laughs> we could put up a flag. Americans right. everywhere have the right to put up a flag. Why should we be deprived of that right? So, but what I did was I talked to somebody who was a retired, very high-level official, and I said, if I go through channels, I'm not sure this will work. I want you to talk to somebody at a very high level at the White House or in the State Department. So they were okay with that? And Obviously, that person supported because, it. Oh, that's great. He wanted the flag to go up. So he called me up one day, and he just said, go ahead. And we, we had a ceremony the next day, and we rose the flag. And I, I remember the day, although I can't find a picture at the moment, there was a, one of our uh, Taiwanese guards who had been around when we had lowered the flag over our embassy when we had broken relations back in 1979. He was there, and he actually cried. Oh. It, was, it was so moving for him. And uh, it was moving for all of us. We were very excited and uh, happy about that. So, I, and what I, the thing was, I also knew, once you put up the flag, nobody can ask you to take it down again. Mm. I mean, that's very un-American. Take down the American flag? No, it's not going to happen. So I knew that was a fait accompli. It was, you know, it was an accomplished fact now. Great job. Well, how do you see U.S.-Taiwan ties going forward with the new Biden administration coming in? Well, you know, uh, there's a lot to be seen. I'm, I'm enthusiastic about some of the people I see coming into government, less so with others. But I know for a fact that the Taiwanese are very nervous about this because there was a poll taken a week before uh, the U.S. elections and 53% of Taiwanese people said they wanted Trump to win. And I think that represents a serious misunderstanding of Trump. Uh, if you look at the John Bolton uh, memoirs that he wrote about his time in the White House, you remember he famously compared Taiwan to the tip of his pen and China to his resolute desk in the Oval Office. And I think in many ways for Donald Trump, 
With regard to Taiwan, Taiwan was a bargaining chip in his efforts to get a massive trade deal with China, which failed. And we know that there were probably, or we suspect that there were probably conversations he had, which he didn't talk about, with uh, Xi Jinping about Taiwan. For example, we know in their very first meeting in Mar-a-Lago, he talked about it to the media that uh, Xi Jinping had explained the whole history of Korea and how Korea had once been part of China. He said, I never knew that. Now, we can't imagine Xi Jinping spending time saying Korea was part of China, something that the Koreans were very upset about when it made the news. And he wasn't also talking about how from time immemorial, lying and saying Taiwan was part of China. So I think he always saw potentially using Taiwan in some way in that manner. But he had people around him who were very Mm pro-Taiwan, whether it was John Bolton, who quit, whether it was Mike Pompeo, his Secretary of State. So he picked an administration that was very strongly supportive of Taiwan and wanted to make a difference and recognized not only had the PRC turned out not to be the country we had hoped it would become, but Taiwan had far exceeded anyone's expectations. Mm. I think back in 1979, that's why it was so easy to say, well, we'll break relations with Taiwan because there was so much hope that this huge country, the People's Republic of China, would transform itself. And everybody underestimated the potential of Taiwan to become a democracy, to become a prosperous economy, to become a center for technology. All of that, we were short-sighted, or at least most of us were short-sighted about what Taiwan's potential would be. You know, I may have underestimated Taiwan when I was a student here, but by the time I came back in uh, 2009, I could see the enormous strides that Taiwan had made economically, socially, politically. It was changing. You could see that. But America and a lot of our experts didn't see that. Well, it seems that um, things are going forward with more clarity and uh, hopefully um, in a positive direction. I hope so, yeah. um, Well, we noticed that if you look carefully at what Biden said in the past and what he said more recently... You know, he's gotten a lot of criticism because he downplayed the threat from China when he said, oh, those guys, they're not nothing for us to worry about early on when he was running as a candidate. But subsequently, he's referred to Xi, uh, Xi Jinping as a thug. He's called attention to the human rights situation in Hong Kong. So um, I think I think we're going to move and continue to move in a positive direction with Taiwan. And... You know, under Xi Jinping, China continues to make moves that appeal to no one in America. You have to remember that 73% of the American people now, according to the Summer Pew survey this past summer, have an unfavorable view of the PRC. That's the highest it's ever been in history. And even a higher percentage of American people, 77%, have an unfavorable view um, they don't trust Xi Jinping to do the right thing in foreign foreign affairs. So then you also have a Congress, which more than any time in 
my 34 years as a U.S. diplomat and since then, we have a Congress which is totally unified in support of Taiwan. Even during the Trump period, there were six important pieces of legislation, mostly rhetorically encouraging the government to do things, but they were all very supportive of Taiwan. I think there's a willingness and I think there's strong support for a continuing improvement in U.S.-Taiwan relations. We can throw this out the window now, right? No. <laughs> things like this. <laughs> I don't know. Well, no, because well, it still says you can't enter on a diplomatic passport <laughs> if you're a diplomat. I mean, that may stay because that's inherent until the day comes that we say we're establishing diplomatic relations. Mm, okay. You know? But in point of fact, as I say, there are diplomats currently in Taiwan who I happen to know enter on diplomatic passports. you think that the AIT or um, the foreign ministry is actually relieved or disappointed um, in the cancellation of the UN ambassador uh, Kelly Craft's visit to Taiwan? What do you think? Well, I think both um, AIT, the foreign ministry, I think the U.S. State Department probably would have welcomed a visit because of its symbolism. Uh, it would have been the highest-ranking person. I mean, other than uh, Health Minister Azar or um, Cabinet Minister Azar, but you know, generally considered the most prestigious. Um, because you're representing the United States to the world, the most prestigious ambassadorial position is that of the UN representative. So if she had come, that would have been a, a, a breakthrough. And I think everybody would have welcomed it, although I'm not sure that there would have been a lot of substance to discuss unless the focus was on Taiwan's participation in international organizations, which needs a boost. I mean, it's... It's scandalous that Taiwan is not participating in the World Health Organization, not participating in the uh, Interpol. Because we had always taken the position, even when we were saying, well, no country should participate if, uh, if they're a non-state actor, which actually is contrary. That was first formulated by Bill Clinton when he was president. And particularly, he endorsed it when he visited Beijing in 1998 when I was the political counselor in Beijing, and he reiterated what he were called the three no's that his press spokesman had previously noted back in Washington, I think it was. And what he wasn't aware of, I don't think, and nobody pointed out, that if you look at the Taiwan Relations Act, Section 4D, it says nothing in this act should in any way change the status of Taiwan in international organizations or international financial organizations. And so it's contrary to U.S. law. Really? I didn't know that was in there. Yeah. It's, it's Section 4D. I've looked at it many times, and it's quite specific. So that's the United Nations. So, you know, the fact that that's there, um, I don't think people have paid enough attention to that. I don't think... Bill Clinton had the right as an executive decision to simply say Taiwan could not participate. So we would have hoped, you know, maybe with some preparation that people would have called attention to those facts. And when the UN ambassador uh, came, she would have been made cognizant of that contradiction. Um, because it's certainly, particularly on issues of health, safety, welfare of people, Taiwan 
absolutely needs to be in those organizations. Do you think there's hope for that to happen? I sure hope so. I, I, I you know, I hope so. So, yeah, it, it makes sense. Uh, you know, recently there were a couple of articles saying we shouldn't go back. Uh, one appeared in um, to the, the WHO, diplomat. Right? We shouldn't Taiwan. go back in the World Health Organization if Taiwan can't go back in. Yeah, I've seen that too. Uh, and another one, you know, they also added another one that. You know, we also shouldn't re-enter the WHO if Tedros was still in charge of it because he's been such a uh, a surrogate for the PRC. So I would have welcomed the visit. I don't know that much would have happened, but I think it would have been symbolically important and possibly also an opportunity to make a strong direct case to the UN representative on the issue of Taiwan's need to be in international organizations. As someone pointed out also, both Taiwan and the United States provide more for the WHO and have more to offer the WHO. At this point especially, right? At this point especially (laughs) than current members of the WHO. Taiwan is the greatest example of success in fighting COVID-19 in the world, bar none. That's right. Well, it's been fascinating speaking with you, uh, William, and hearing the inside story and all these uh, interesting do's and don'ts about Taiwan. (laughs) And uh, I've been speaking with uh, Dr. William Stanton. He is the former director of the American Institute in Taiwan, the de facto U.S. Embassy in Taiwan. He's the current vice president of National Yangming University. Thank you for being here in Taiwan and being such a great friend of Taiwan. I love Taiwan. John Van Trieste and the destination Ximending 1908. In the middle of Taipei's Ximending shopping district is a red brick building that at first glance seems out of place amid the LED signs and neon lights. But this is the Red House, the district's beloved focal point which still takes pride of place as one of the oldest and grandest buildings around. Since its construction 110 years ago, people have continued to find new uses for the Red House, and it remains one of Taipei's most popular historic sites today. This week, we're taking a look at the Red House and its great success in reinventing itself. 
1908, Taiwan had been under Japanese colonial rule for just over a dozen years. That year, the Red House went up following a Western-style design by the Japanese architect Kondo Judo. Aside from the red brick exterior that gave the building its name, the design is also notable for its highly geometric form. Kondo built a brick octagon, and next to that, a brick cross. This design, a bit like a cathedral really, stood out. But the building wasn't that out of place at a time when other grand brick buildings were going up in Taipei. The architect Kondo Judo worked for the colonial authorities in a local civil engineering department. And the building he designed was meant to house a public market. In some ways, then, this was an ordinary municipal building. But the market was a special place, and the design helped make it that way. Inside the brick octagon, windows let light in from multiple sides. There was an upper floor with a nice restaurant, and a lower floor with some upmarket goods. Candies, shoes, stationery, and so forth. A growing number of Japanese colonists moved into the neighborhood, and the market became a place to serve their needs. Meanwhile, in the cross-shaped section of the building, there was another market selling groceries and more everyday items. Over time, the Ximanding area, where the Red House sat, became a center of entertainment. And it was show business so much in the air that would come to take up much of the building's later career. In 1945, with the end of World War II, five decades of Japanese rule over Taiwan came to an end. The Japanese residents who'd done much of the shopping at the market left Taiwan. The new Republic of China government, though, soon brought a new wave of people to Taiwan. A group of people hungry for the entertainment the neighborhood had already become known for. These people were exiles, people who left their homes in mainland China as Chinese communist forces advanced. A few years after taking control of Taiwan, the communist advance proved too great. The republic's government retreated to Taiwan, taking with it a wave of soldiers and loyalist migrants. Though cut off from their homes, these exiles found comfort in familiar forms of theater and storytelling. During the first few post-war decades, the Red House became a center of these morale-boosting shows, under the management of Chen Huiwen, who'd left glitzy Shanghai behind. On stage were dramatic arts high and low, as varied as Beijing opera and traditional comedy. Of course, at the time, the government was an authoritarian one with many red lines, just the kind of government that a theater could easily rub the wrong way. And on at least one occasion, the Red House did cross one of those lines. In 1949, as the government retreated to Taiwan, the theater was ordered closed after some songs deemed unacceptable had been performed there. Still, the theater scene in Taipei was relatively free compared with theater in the exile's hometowns. The Red House would reopen, and a number of well-regarded actors and directors got their chops on stage there. (music) 
After some years as a playhouse, the Red House transformed yet again with the times. In 1963, a movie theater was opened inside. After this, the building became a place to see martial arts flicks, local period pieces, and movies from the West that had already finished their theatrical runs elsewhere. Tickets were cheap, and you could stay all day. It was a place for young people, especially, to gather together and revel in being modern and fashionable, something the building still offers the young people of today. There was plenty going on nearby too. Though the Red House was no longer a market itself, a big new shopping center selling the latest goods had also gone up in the area not long before. By the 1980s, though. The neighborhood's fortunes had greatly shifted as Taipei's center of gravity moved elsewhere. The area was falling apart and blighted, growing dingy and crowded. The Red House's reputation as a movie theater fell to that of an old place showing only old films. The surrounding area still has its rough edges today, but since urban development plans and the beginnings of a metro system in the 1990s, the Red House has rebounded. This recovery took some time, and there have been setbacks. The project to revive the building took off in 1994, when a group of artists began holding performances to raise awareness about its state. This work was eventually recognized, and the building was declared a historic site in 1997. There was still the unanswered question, though, about what to do with the site. Initial plans were to open a film museum inside, but these were eventually shelved, and it was decided that the space should be more than just a museum. It should instead be an active place for the arts once again, with exhibits as well as performances. A local cultural group, the Paper Windmill Cultural Foundation, invested heavily in renovating the site, fixing everything from leaks to electrical issues. The group was also put in charge of managing the building for the first few years after its reopening. The work was difficult, but it not only brought the Red House back into regular use; it also drew a vibrant cultural scene to the surrounding square. There's always something going on, and even an arson attack that damaged the square in 2016 did not stop the flow of people. Regular handicraft and flea markets spring up here, with vendors selling leatherwork, jewelry, and other wares from tents. The Red House has also become a cornerstone of Taipei's nightlife, with bars, cafes, and restaurants filling the square with outdoor seating in the evening. Taiwan's LGBT community has gravitated here especially, with gay bars and gay-friendly businesses all around the brick octagon. The square outside is so full of revelers during Taipei's annual Pride Festival that overseas visitors in town for the parade probably leave with a deeper impression of this building than they do of Taipei 101. 110 years after its construction, the Red House is one of the best Taiwanese examples of an old building brought back to life, even as the times and the cityscapes around it change. I'm John Van Trieste. And I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time.
The sound of the Amis tribe on Radio Taiwan International. This is Highlights brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. had a long period of no local transmissions between mid-April and late December when an airplane pilot infected his female companion. And that brings us all the way up until this month. So here's what you need to know about the cluster infection at the hospital in northern Taiwan. This is Taoyuan General Hospital located about an hour outside of Taipei near Taiwan's largest international airport. Many workers, as you can see, are in full PPE. It looks pretty empty because they've closed down some of the wards and are no longer admitting new patients or allowing visitors. So how did the cluster infection begin? It all began with patient 812. A Taiwanese man in his 60s who returned to Taiwan from the U.S. in late December. He was diagnosed with COVID-19 on January 3rd. On January 12th, a doctor at the same hospital was confirmed to have COVID-19. It's thought that he got it while intubating that patient. On the same day, a nurse who lives with the doctor was also confirmed. Now, the doctor is also thought to have infected another nurse and doctor at the hospital, who then infected a Vietnamese caregiver and two more medical workers. So far, three family members of medical workers have been infected. So what's going to happen following this outbreak? Well, on Thursday, Health Minister Chen Shizong said that there would not be a lockdown. However, he is calling for the cancellation of all large-scale public events. And many of them have to do with the Chinese Lunar New Year, such as the popular Dihua Market and also the Lantern Festival, which is canceled for the first time. Let's take a look. A dazzling array of lights on slender stalks of bamboo. The main display at Taiwan's 2021 Lantern Festival is quite a sight, but would-be visitors will have to wait. Authorities have cancelled February's event after Taiwan saw four new domestic cases on Tuesday. Transport Minister Lin Jialong is reassuring artists their hard work won't be for nothing. He says there will be future opportunities to display their craft work, but the event in Xinzhou cannot take place as planned. Meanwhile, restaurants and hotels hoping to profit from the flood of visitors have been left to count the cost. Hotel PR manager Rose says they're already feeling the effect. She says as soon as the event was cancelled, customers began calling to cancel reservations. But on the bright side, without traffic controls in place, hotels near the festival grounds are seeing a bump in reservations for the Lunar New Year. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw. Our 60-minute English program can be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. 
In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6185 kilohertz. In South Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199 Taipei, Taiwan. You can also email us at rti at rti.org.tw.